go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness towards us. For we are a faithless people. And you are faithful to us. Your steadfast love and your mercy endures forever, Lord. Ours does not. We're flighty, we're forgetful. We don't always come before you the way we should. But we're thankful that you are not like us, that you are unchangeable, that you are perfect in every way, that you are beautiful and majestic, that you're good, that you are so good to us, Lord. We ask for your goodness to be upon us during this time for a visitation of your spirit, for all of us that are gathered in this place during this time to worship you in our songs and our prayers and our listening to the word and the proclaiming of the word for the edification of each other and building each other up speaking a good word to the saints, Lord, to build up the body so Christ can present himself, this body, as a beautiful bride. We pray for all of those that are part of our, our body that are, are not with us during this time, whether they are traveling, whether they're across the world, whether they are local and not able to attend due to some form of providential hindrance. For those that are joining us online, we pray for them that they receive a blessing, a blessing from a distance during this time. Lord, we pray for Pastor Thomas as he is in Africa. Give him strength. Renew his, his physical body during this time. Keep him from the aches and the pains and the, the, the physical downness that he might experience. Give him strength to teach these men that are coming to these conferences to give them a more solid foundation as they go out into their churches we thank you for all the blessings that you give us, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of this church, the blessing of us gathering together on this evening. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So due to an illness, our last two sermons on the book of Exodus were a bit asynchronous. That's okay, though. Hal first taught about the giving of the law, specifically the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, and then Dirk did a bit of a, of a backtrack and then preached on God's provision and God's wisdom from Exodus 17 and 18. So tonight we're going we're gonna to get back to the order of the narrative, sort of, because our primary text is going to be Exodus 24. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want to, but keep your finger there because we're actually going to go back to Exodus 19 first. So we did 20, then we went back to 17 and 18, and then I was supposed to do 24, but I can't go to 24 before we go to 19 first. So we're going to set the stage for this because we might have, you know, slipped our minds exactly how we've gotten to this point. So we're going to back, back up and set the context back in 19. So after Masa and Meribah and then the defeat of the Amalekites and then Jethro's advice, Israel has finally made it to Mount Sinai. So first we're going to read chapter 19, verses 1 through 9a, and then we're going to skip down to a couple of verses in the 20s, and I'll, I'll direct you there when we get there. So let's start with Exodus 19, verses 1 through 9a. This is what it says in the word of the Lord. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be, a king, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. Now jump down to verses 20 and 21. It says, And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. And then skip down to verse 25. So Moses went down to the people, and he told them. Okay. So then, after this, there's the giving of the law in chapter 20 holds a special significance above the other laws given in the Old Testament code because the Ten Commandments and how you cover this thundered directly from God's voice to the people they weren't communicated through Moses, the Ten Commandments were not everything else was the Ten Commandments are communicated directly to the people after this and then the people's fear Moses then moves up the mountain to God again if you jump over to chapter 20 verse 21 it said the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So Moses goes back up the mountain again. It's there that God gives Moses other laws of the covenant. Laws about altars, laws about slaves and social institutions, laws about restitutions, laws about justice, laws about the Sabbath and festivals, and then the promise of the conquest of the promised land at the end of chapter 23. And so that then brings us to chapter 24. So here we go. Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient." And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. 
So Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. So the primary point of this portion of the narrative and the book of Exodus is really the con- and really kind of the context of all of redemptive history and this specific portion right here lies around the fact that this section of scripture is primarily concerned with the people of Israel agreeing to uphold the terms of the Mosaic covenant. We'll talk about this a little more in just a minute. So the primary focus of this sermon is going to be the Mosaic Covenant and the confirmation of that covenant, like you see in the title. But first, I wanted us to observe a few other things that we're going to see in this passage before we get to the actual covenant itself. And you'll notice here, if you, if you take chapters 19 and 24 together, and then that, that verse in, in chapter 20, you notice that there is a lot of ascending and descending on Moses' part here. Moses goes up the mountain and then comes down the mountain at least once in chapter 19, maybe twice, depending on how you read it. And then again in in chapter 24. And then in chapter 24, not only does Moses go up, God tells Moses, along with others this time, to come up the mountain only part ways, and then Moses goes even further. But first, before Moses even does this and tells the people to do this, he has to go down to the people and communicate God's message to them. And then he goes back up the mountain some distance with Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and then 70 elders of the people of Israel. And then after the group's fellowship with God, Moses goes alone into God's special presence for 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses, we've got, you know, Moses going down, going up, down, up, down, up, down the mountain. And then he's, you know, he's with God in the cloud. He comes back down to the people He's with God in the cloud. He comes back down to the people. He's ascending and descending, ascending and descending, descending and ascending. He's speaking as God's representative to the people and then speaking as the people's representative to God. There's a very important principle being communicated here. There needs to be a mediator between God and the people. There has to be a mediator here because of God's overwhelming, consuming presence. They can't experience him directly. There needs to be a mediator. You hear the word mediator a lot in Christian circles, especially in Reformed Christian circles. We hear that word all the time. You probably know exactly what it means. But I wanted to just examine it quite a bit from specifically an etymological standpoint by relating it to a few other words that we often use in the English language. Because the root of the word really just means middle. And the mediator is the middle. And you see this in other words that we have in, in English too, like the word median, the you know, set of a number. It's the number, set of numbers. It's the number that's right in the middle of the set of numbers if you order them. Or the median of an interstate, it's, it's what's in between the two lanes of the interstate. Or the word medium, whenever you're referring to like clothing sizes, you got large, you got small, well medium's what's in the middle of these things, it connects the large and the small. Or you got a medium in terms of witchcraft, this is the person that goes in between the underworld and the living world, you got a medium that communicates between these two worlds. Or even the word media, which is the plural of the word medium. When you're ever talking about like news or social, me- social media, it's, media is the plural of mediums or the plural of medium. It's all these mediums that go in between 
the source and the people. Or even in mediation, in the legal sense. You have a person that, you got two opposing parties here and they agree to a mediator in mediation that are going to connect these two parties and get them to agree on something. So all these things, they simply describe something that goes between or sits in the middle or connects two things that otherwise would have a gap in between them and they can't agree. And that's the same function that Moses is serving here too. We have God in his complete, all-inducing, unimaginable holiness at one end of the spectrum over here. And on the other hand, you've got this completely unworthy tribe of grumbling slaves whom God in his marvelous grace has chosen to be his people. But he's too holy for them to experience directly. Something, or more specifically, someone must bridge this gap between these two. Someone has to communicate God's nature to these filthy complainers. And that's where Moses comes in. Moses is the mediator. He's the one that's going to go in between God and the people. And Moses here, Moses is peculiar peculiar in biblical history because he's actually performing a two-way mediation here. Later on, whenever Israel is fully established, the mediatorial roles of prophet and priest are really only one-way streets here. The prophet is the one that communicates from God to the people by receiving direct revelation from God. And in turn, the priest is the person or the people that communicates from the people back to God through the sacrificial system. So you've got prophet going from God to the people, and you've got priest going from the people to God. These are just really just one-way streets. But Moses, Moses is fulfilling both roles here, the ascending and descending between God and the people, talking to God, talking to the people, talking back to God, talking back to people. He's communicating in both directions. No more one way, no one-way street with Moses. So it's really obvious, if you know the rest of the Bible, that Moses is really pointing us to Jesus Christ here. He's a type of Christ. But Christ is a perfect mediator. Obviously, Moses is not. Moses has flaws. Moses has sins. Moses cannot completely and fully enjoy God's presence. Moses doesn't have the power to sanctify the people. Moses can't save them. But Christ can. Christ has no flaws. Christ has no sins. Christ has enjoyed blessed unity with God the Father since eternity past. And Christ, through his Holy Spirit, he does sanctify the saints. Christ has the power to save. So he's the mediator the world truly needs. Moses was simply just a type of him. And through our union with Christ, we are brought into the presence of God completely. It's a perfect mediator. He's the one that fills the gap perfectly so we can really communicate with God. There are no gaps. The void is completely filled, and we are not consumed by God's holiness. Instead, we get to glory in God's holiness instead of being consumed by it. So also, not only the mediatorial role here, but all of the descending and ascending also points us to Jesus too. So I can just imagine here that, that Moses really, maybe taking some poetic license here, but I, I can imagine Moses putting up some sort of resistance when God tells him to go out of his special presence and to go back to the people. Because we get a little taste of what this presence might be like in chapter 24 and verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read those again because it gives us a, a nice vivid description of what even just a taste of the presence of God looks like. And this wasn't even the special presence. 
It says that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he, does not lay his hand, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men and of the people of Israel that beheld God, and they ate and drank. And so eating and drinking, you can, you've all experienced this, eating and drinking in the presence of good company is a great experience, even amidst all the brokenness in our world. If you go share a good meal, eating and drinking, hours can pass by if you're in good company and good conversation, right? And you leave there feeling refreshed. You leave there feeling like, wow, that night could have went on forever, right? Can you imagine partaking of a dinner party that is hosted by God himself? Because that really kind of seems like what's, what's going on right here. Not only is it a dinner party, the floor itself is made of sapphires, Remember sapphire? Sapphire is a beautiful gem. The floor itself is made of the purest of sapphires. And this is quite the thought. And it's interesting, you know, heaven is really kind of described in John's vision in Revelation of kind of the same way. You know, the streets are paved with gold there. And it's not really that gold is, you know, John's not communicating that heaven is full of all these precious jewels. And there's, I mean, there's absolute beauty there, obviously. But it's more of a communication of how worthless gold is in heaven. Because all these things are worthless that we have here. Because we're going to be in the presence of God. Gold is worthless because they pave the, street, they pave the streets with it. You know, you don't pave the streets with gold. You pave the streets with tar and rocks here. Because those things are relatively worthless. But in heaven, gold is relatively worthless. Because we're in the presence of God. It's the same thing here. Sapphires, whenever they're enjoying the presence of God, are worthless just a description because they're in the presence of God and even in this right here this beautiful description of this this dinner party hosted by God this is not even the extra special presence that Moses alone gets to enjoy because this is with 73 others Moses gets a special presence with God all by himself because he goes up later on whenever they stay right there So it really isn't that big of a stretch to think that Moses might have protested a little bit whenever God sends him out of his special presence to go back down to the people. So he has to descend out of God's presence. So can you imagine how grueling and demeaning it must have been for Jesus Christ? The second person of the Godhead to descend to us. Not only did he descend... He descends in the form of a naked infant, depending upon humans for survival, born in a trough where animals eat food. But he didn't ask why. He willingly offered himself. As Philippians 2.7 describes it, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Or as Jesus himself describes it in John 6.38, For I have come down, or I have descended from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. No trepidation, no protesting, no rebellion, just pure love for the Father and pure love for the people. And then after the grueling torture of the cross and the descent into the hell of taking on the full fury of God's wrath, Jesus gets a double ascent. So even after he descends from heaven, he descends even further. But then after the descent... He gets a double ascent because he first ascends from the chains of death because the grave could not hold him. And then he receives the ultimate ascension into the clouds where his feet share that sapphire ground of the Father 
while he's sitting at his right hand, still forever mediating on our behalf. And this is our future joy as Christians. This is what we get to look forward to. This is our destiny as Christians. Because we are united to Christ, we share in his glory, becoming partakers of the divine nature, enjoying God's presence and holiness and dwelling with him. And you can obviously see what a massive, massive blessing this is. We get the ascent without ever having to experience the descent, the descent. We get the ascent without the descent. It's pure blessings received without any work whatsoever. And it's pure grace. It's all grace. We get the blessings. We get the ascent without, without ever having to experience the descent. Pure grace. So, before we got to the Mosaic Covenant, I just wanted to bring out the mediation that Moses experiences and how it points us to Jesus, and also the descent and ascent of Moses and how it points us to Jesus. And so we get to the main point of the sermon tonight, the confirmation of the Mosaic Covenant. So let's move on to that topic. So being the Reformed person that I am, I love me some covenant theology, and I really love some Baptist covenant theology, so I'm really, really going to resist my urge to really plow through an overview of Baptist covenant theology here. So I've, I've made that mistake before to try to shove that into 45 minutes, and because it really requires a lot longer than that. Um, and so I'm not going to do that, but I gotta, I've got to at least state what you know covenant theology is because the rest of the sermon is not going to make any sense if I don't. Um, so let's just suffice it to say that God's primary means for unfolding the story of redemptive history is through his covenants. We'll kind of leave it at that. And depending on how you view things, there are five to seven covenants revealed to us in God's word so I'll just mention the five that everyone who subscribes to covenant theology agree on. One is the Noahic covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant um, makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And we have the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19 and 24, which we're going to cover tonight, obviously. This is fully fleshed out in later chapters and books. We have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then we have the new covenant, which is first promised in Jeremiah 31, and then it's ratified by Jesus in Luke 22. So those are the covenants. If I, wrote, if I spoke too fast and you're trying to write those down, I'm sorry, you can see me afterwards. Those are the covenants. Each one of those has a specific purpose of revealing God's character and moving the history in the direction of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It was always by that, but it's each God's revealing this throughout redemptive history in terms of these covenants. But given that we are presented with the text before us tonight, we're going to take just a relatively brief, you know, you can develop the Mosaic Covenant over the course of an entire semester too, but we're going to take a very brief moment and discuss and look at and focus on the Mosaic Covenant here. <clears throat> the terms of the covenant are provisionally stated in Exodus 20 through 23, where God gives his moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, and then some of the civil and ceremonial laws are stated after that. And then the, the terms of the covenant are really developed later on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and they reach a sort of climax in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when right before the people are going in to take the promised land, you get half the tribes of Israel standing on one mountain, 
and shout what will be God's blessings if they uphold the covenant. And then on a mountain that's facing them, you got the other half of the tribes that are standing opposite, and they shout God's curses upon them if they break the covenant. So you got all the shouting back and forth of covenant blessings and covenant curses if they keep or break the covenant. All of this gets fully developed later, later on in the Torah. So in our text today, the two parties, they make a simple, it's simple, but it's weighty, agreement to uphold the covenant. We're going to uphold the covenant. So this, the thesis statement here of the covenant really, and its primary purpose, is stated by God back in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read that again. This is, this is really the primary purpose of the covenant. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is, this is the purpose here. This is the thesis. This is the primary purpose for God blessing them. Is they're going to be his treasured possession. They're going to be a kingdom of priests and they're going to be a holy nation. That's really the purpose of the covenant here. This is the basis of all the promised blessings. All the specific blessings that you get later on are really just centered around this. Them being a treasured people of God. Them being a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. God is only going to truly bless those who are his, who are his treasured possessions. And the basis of the blessings upon Israel, like I said, is due to their holiness, their set-apartness as a nation that is holy to God. So without the holiness, there's not going to be any blessings. And this kingdom of priests and a holy nation is really supposed to serve as a light to the surrounding nation. So it's given specifically to them, but it wasn't just restricted to them. They're supposed to be a light to the surrounding nations. Through them, everyone around them was supposed to come to understand that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is the only true God, and He's the only one that's worthy of worship. This is the implication that is initially promised and received here at Sinai. God is going to bless Israel, and then He's going to bless the world through Israel. And you'll notice here, you'll notice something peculiar about the Mosaic Covenant whenever you compare it to those other covenants that I mentioned. All the other covenants are unilateral, one way, or they're unconditional covenant. In those, God binds himself and only himself to uphold the terms of the covenant, regardless of what the recipients might do. The Mosaic Covenant is different. It's a bilateral, two-way or a conditional covenant, conditioned upon things. Both parties must uphold the terms. The blessings are conditional upon Israel's obedience to God's law. If they uphold the law, God blesses them. If they reject the law, God curses them. So both parties have obligations here. And we know God is perfect. God never changes. God always fulfills his promises. So we know he's going to keep his end of the bargain here. It's up to Israel to keep their end of the bargain. So it's bilateral, conditional covenant. But even stating that, it's really important to remember that the law could never save anyone. So we got the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law, God's wanting to bless the people. At the same time, the law, the old covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, could never save anyone. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. And y'all know me, I go all over the Bible when I preach. I'm going to do it again tonight. Be prepared. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, in the New Testament, when something refers to the law, it's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Putting that out there. So keep that in mind as we read some New Testament verses that, that reference the law. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the law could never save anyone. It's no use for salvation. So why was it given then? If it's no use for salvation, why is it given? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was added to display what sin is until the offspring of Abraham, which are the people that live by faith, until the offspring of Abraham could come to Jesus. So then he asks, is the law contrary then to the promises of God? And you know the passage. Paul emphatically responds, certainly not. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It just doesn't bestow righteousness. As Paul would say elsewhere, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ was always what saved and Paul brings us to the point that he's trying to make in Galatians 3. I'm going to go there now in Galatians 3 in verses 24 through 26. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then skip down to verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the law was there, the law still is there, to lead us to Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. So I know that's kind of, that is the reason for the law. That's what it was pointing us to. It couldn't save, it was there as a guardian it was there to show us our sins, and it was there to point us to Jesus, because he can save. And he's a mediator of a better covenant anyway. So I know that I said we we're going to focus on the Mosaic Covenant, but I, just, I, just, I can't go through the sermon without looking at the New Covenant, sorry. So before we get to the New Covenant, though, and so no one gets confused, let's explicitly state that the New Covenant was not God's plan B. We've got to state that, state that up front. God is not reacting to the failure on the part of the Israelites to uphold the, the Old Covenant. So, spoiler alert, Israel does not uphold the Old Covenant. <laughs> now, if you ever read the Old Testament, it does not happen. Not hardly ever. Not even for a little bit. But God is not just reacting to them not upholding the Old Covenant and then say, well, I need a new covenant. I gotta, they didn't do this, so, oh well. I've got to make a new one. God's not doing that. Interwoven throughout all of these covenants is the thread of the covenant of grace that's tracing all the way back to even before God created the world. The three persons of the Godhead agreed to redeem a people for themselves even before the world is established. So grace, grace was always the plan. Grace is plan A. And grace 
comes. Grace was always there. So then, let's first look at the promise of the new covenant, where it is first stated. This is after hundreds of years of old covenant breaking by Israel and Judah, and the final fulfillment of the covenant curses of God. Everyone is being exiled from the promised land. Israel has already been exiled. Judah is being exiled right now. And then this is the first promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, this is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Remember here, we've got an unconditional covenant now. We've got a unilateral covenant. There's no promise on behalf of the people. There's only promises made on behalf of God. This is the final one. This is the final covenant that's coming. It's completely unconditional. It's all of grace here. There's no works involved whatsoever. So the day is coming, God says, that I'm going to bring total forgiveness of sins, hearts that are pure towards God because he's going to write the law on the hearts of the people. And there's going to be an intimacy with God that no one has experienced before. This, this is a wonderful promise, right? But still, still it's going to be a few hundred years before the promised covenant is ratified here. And just like the old covenant was ratified by a blood oath, if you remember, there's all the blood in Exodus chapter 24. They slay the animals and the blood is in the basin. It's, it's on the books. On, they, Moses throws it against the other people. I don't know how appealing that sounds to you, but not really so much to me. He throws it against the altar and throws it on the people. There's, the blood oath really underscores the seriousness of the oath here. Yeah, a lot of the covenants didn't have a blood oath within them that, that we mentioned. Um, some of them did, other than the Mosaic and the New, but some of them also didn't. And this also, this really undertakes the seriousness of it here. And Jeremiah, interestingly, doesn't, doesn't mention that the New Covenant is going to be a blood oath, but it is. It is because when it is ratified in Luke chapter 22... This is what Jesus says at the institution of the Lord's Supper is when the new covenant is ratified. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Pastor Thomas say this every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of the month. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. This is a reminder to us that the new covenant has been ratified. This that was promised all the way back through Jeremiah, that the law is on our hearts that the God is forgiving, has forgiven our sins, that we are united to him, that we are a holy nation and a treasured possession to God, and that our sins and iniquity are no more. And so, it's now ratified. It's ratified by blood. It's ratified by the blood of Jesus. And so we cannot do anything to earn the blessings of the covenant, nor can we do anything to nullify it. 
because it all depends upon Christ. And you can see now why Hebrews calls this a better covenant, right? Because it's promised salvation, it's promised intimacy with God, and it's completely unconditional and irresistible grace. There's nothing that we can do to nullify it. It's only from God. This is why it's a better covenant. See, even though the law was given to point out our sinfulness and to point us to something greater than itself as a shadow of the good things to come, it could not save. And its mediator could not save. So this old covenant comes to its ultimate end in Jesus Christ. This is why he said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then back in Hebrews chapter 9, this is what it says, starting in verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing the eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been, get, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's that blood ratification again that's here in Hebrews. Back in verse 15, I've got to read it again. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Elsewhere, Hebrews calls it a better covenant. What a beautiful tapestry you see here of redemption that God has wrote, woven for us. It's all beautiful. This kind of brought together. This is why I love covenant theology so much because it brings it all together in such a beautiful, soul-satisfying way. So rich, right? so satisfying here. This is what God has done for us. This is what He has revealed to us. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. So then, in light of being recipients of the new covenant, and all the believers here are, are the law is on your heart being recipients of the new covenant, how then should we live? Well, I think we actually get a, a good response to that question from the Israelites whenever they agree to the terms of the old covenant. In both chapters 19 and 24 of Exodus, once in chapter 19 but twice in 24, Moses communicates God's requirements to the Israelites that are gathered to hear the word from God 
And the whole congregation, there's a refrain here, once in 19, twice in 24, the whole congregation says the same thing all three times. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, we promise to keep God's commandments. So you might be saying to yourself, Seth, this is the old covenant. We aren't required to keep God, keep the commandments. And I would respond, yeah, you're right. Under the terms of the new covenant, we aren't required to keep the commandments in order to be justified before God. We're not. Jesus paid the once and for all price for our justification. Amen and amen. But notice the place of the law within the promise of the new covenant of Jeremiah. Where does the law reside? The law is not gone. The law resides on the hearts of the recipients of the covenant. The law is there. Peter quite obviously has Exodus 19 and 24 on his mind when he writes his first epistle. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, he opens up by addressing who he calls the elect exiles. So the elect exiles are everyone that are recipients of the new covenant. It's everyone who has the law written on their hearts. That's who Peter is writing this to. The elect exiles. And he describes them in verse 2. He says, The elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, in the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Man, there's a lot in that verse right there. There is a lot. Obviously, it's Trinitarian. I wasn't even going to bring that out. This This is a Trinitarian verse, obviously, here. But for our purposes, it's mainly for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, right? That's the ratification of the old. That's the ratification of the new. The sprinkling of the blood's there. The obedience to Jesus Christ is there. And so there's the, the connection to Exodus 24 with the sprinkling of the blood that's going to ratify the covenants, right? And then in verse 9 of, of chapter 1, chapter 2. Yes, I'm sorry, verse 9 of chapter 2, it gets even more explicit. Notice the language that Peter uses in verse 9 of chapter 2. But you, these are the same words as in chapter 19 of Exodus. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he names four things there, three of which are exactly the way that they're stated back in Exodus chapter 19 when God is telling the people what the thesis or the promises of the covenant are, what the terms of the blessing are going to be. What all the blessings are based upon is that the people are a royal priesthood The people are a holy nation, and they are God's treasured possession. So Peter's obviously connecting this back, right? So the people of the new covenant, Peter says, are going to be known by their obedience to the words of Jesus. And Jesus agrees, because Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what Jesus says. And so we reply to this, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So yes, our justification does not depend upon us keeping the law. But that's one of the things that's so freeing about the gospel. Our bondage to death and darkness has ceased. 
The chains of sin have lost their strangleholds on us, and so our hearts are free to worship and obey the commands of the Savior. And so we do it with joy. That is the manifestation of the law being written on your heart. That is what it looks like when a tree bears good fruit. We have freedom to enjoy God, and we have freedom to follow Him. And this is complete folly to the world. But the true Christian understands the joys in following Jesus, no matter what that brings. So I'm going to end with the words of one of my study Bibles here. It's a quote. Even in covenant mercies, God remains God, and we must obey Him. This requires more than verbal commitment. Israel pledged obedience but had no heart to perform it. We need the Spirit of God to sanctify our hearts by faith so that we experience Christ's blood and apply it to our guilt and then obey God. Do you have this living hope that produces holiness? Are you like most of Israel? All words but no reality. So think about that. We have a God who has given us the new covenant, this beautiful, sanctifying, holiness-producing covenant. All that the Lord says we will do. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for the beauty of your word, Lord. We're thankful that you have interwoven all of these things into a way that is so rich and satisfying, even intellectually, Lord, but so much more than that. Because you have applied these things to our hearts and you have set us apart as a holy nation and a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests before you, Lord. This was always your plan, bringing it to full fruition under Christ Jesus and ratification in his blood, Lord. Let us think upon these things. That my brothers preached upon these today, Lord, these things that are pure and lovely. What can be more lovely than that? And what can be more lovely than following him and his commands? Let us proclaim together, Lord, as a body of believers, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Help us to do that this week, Lord. Prick our hearts to follow Jesus even more. We love you and we thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.